Hey, everybody, I'm Fran Frischella, and welcome to World of Basketball, the podcast that uh, takes you around the basketball world. The globe has shrunk from Spain and Serbia and Japan and China to down under in Australia, New Zealand, to the United States. We bring you a special guest every week who has a basketball connection, whether it's in NCAA college basketball or the NBA or even in the uh, leagues around the world and uh, try to mix it up and bring you a a different guest from a different corner of the world every week. This week, uh, a friend of mine and a special guest, Scott Morrison, the assistant coach of the Boston Celtics. Uh, He has been with the Celtics a number of years now, and he has a very, very interesting story about starting uh, from Prince Edward Island in the Atlantic provinces of Canada, where he was a star college player, a coach in the Canadian College Leagues, G League, and now sitting alongside Brad Stevens with the Boston Celtics. He will bring us a very, very interesting look at life in the bubble the last three months, someone who lived it every day, and uh, we'll also get his thoughts on the the NBA Finals. We'll talk about his uh, journey, and uh, of course, uh, being a Canadian, we get into why Canadian basketball is exploding, uh, particularly uh, in, in the NCAA in the United States, all so many great players in recent years. And, uh, it's been, it was a fun, uh, a fun discussion. Um, if you are enjoying what we're doing, please subscribe, uh, to this, uh, podcast and rate us, give us a five. We think we're bringing you great content. And also, uh, this will be our 18th world of basketball podcast, and if you haven't caught up with the rest, go back and listen. There are some great, uh, great conversations with people like Jeff Van Gundy and Jerry Colangelo as we get into USA basketball and international basketball uh, going on in the NBA, which has really uh, taken over the NBA. Really, 25% of the league is now born outside the United States. But we also bring you uh, uh, people like Ettore Messina, uh, the great Italian coach, Nick Vucevic, who's starring for the Orlando Magic right now. Uh, Andrew Gaze, probably the greatest player to ever come out of Australia. And by the way, a podcast we did with Kelly Olenek and Kevin Pangos, two Canadians who had uh, great careers at Gonzaga. Kelly's in the NBA Finals. Kevin is playing in Russia. And so uh, a little bit of that Canadian connection uh, uh, with Scott Morrison, our special podcast guest today. Uh, With that, uh, let me introduce you to my uh, sidekick on these World of Basketball podcasts, a man from down under, Chris Tyler. Chris, we both watched the opening game of the NBA Finals last night, and it was not what we expected. Well, well we both watched some of the NBA Finals last night. I think we both got a bit <laughs> tired of it about halfway through the third quarter when the Lakers were about 30 points up and Miami Heat were three players down. That was a that was a terrible game, and uh, yeah. I'm I'm all of a sudden not looking forward to the rest of the NBA Finals. It's been a long, long time since I just don't think I've cared about the NBA Finals, but that's what it's kind of seeming like this year. 
Yeah, well, given, given the fact that uh, there's no other basketball to be watching right now, I'm sure you'll tune in. I, I will be tuning in. And uh, again, if you uh, we're tell we're we're broadcast we're we're uh, recording this uh, podcast uh, the day after the NBA Finals uh, and uh, first game, excuse me, game one. And uh, if you're just catching up. Injuries to Bam Adebayo and uh, Goran Dragic, also an ankle sprain by Jimmy Butler. So all of a sudden, the Miami Heat, who looked so good in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, uh, are are coming up hobbled. But that does not take away, Chris, I thought, an outstanding game, especially in the first half, where the Lakers got off to a slow start and uh, went on a, a hot tear in the second quarter. And that game seemingly was over by halftime. So you got to give the Lakers credit for uh, showing up and uh, and and really knocking the knocking the heat out in that first half. Yeah, and and LeBron just looks engaged. I think he's he's a man yeah. on a mission. He's not going to stop until he gets that fourth ring. Going to take the Lakers to their seventeenth championship. Going to tie themselves with Boston. Man, it's uh, it's not going to be a, a fun next couple of weeks for Celtics fans, especially seeing how bad the Heat played last night. How many injuries they got? Why couldn't this happen last series, friend? <laughs> Why couldn't all these guys go down against the Celtics? Well, you're, Ridiculous. You're, you're showing your true bias now, which is why you you enjoyed this podcast that we did with uh, Coach oh, yeah. Morrison, uh, uh, Celtics assistant coach. But you know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you saw the very final play of the first half. The the, the half ended, and LeBron was oh, yeah. flying in and caught caught that. Re, uh, I think went in and dunked it backwards. Yep. And I thought, oh my God, this guy's 35 years old, 17 seasons in the NBA. And uh, as Mike Breen said last night, uh, ESPN broadcaster, he's probably had, this guy's probably had the longest prime of any player, you know, in NBA history. Uh, He seemingly has not lost very much uh, when you think about the incredible journey he's had since 2003. And this is his 10th NBA Finals. And uh, we can measure greatness in a lot of different ways, Chris. Uh, and we can compare him to the greats of all time. Certainly, you know, Michael Jordan comes to mind. But in his own way, this guy is uh, separated himself as, as, as truly an amazing superstar in NBA history. Exactly. We really have to realize how lucky we are <clears throat> to be able to watch someone as good as him season in season out for someone like me he's the best player I've ever seen I never got to watch Jordan we didn't have cable tv growing up in Australia so we couldn't watch the Bulls in the 90s so this is the best player that I've ever seen play and I think it was one of the series Miami Heat and Boston Celtics from 2000 and when was it I can't remember which series it was exactly but it was at that moment that I realized like, I had to stop hating LeBron because before that, he was just too good. I'm like, you know what? I, I don't like yeah. this guy. But he was so good that I thought, I cannot hate this guy anymore. I just have to be on for the ride. I have to, I have to be here for the ride and just yeah. enjoy the greatness that LeBron James brings to this game. And that's what I've done ever since. And it's a lot better. It's a lot more entertaining when you're rooting for LeBron James than rooting against him. Let me tell you that. Yeah, and and I think that the the beauty of LeBron James is not just incredible, an incredible career. He's a great talent, needless to say, but really both on and off the court, and especially on the court, because we don't really know him off the court, but on the court, he has always played as a great teammate. 
Um, this is a guy who gets his team involved uh, offensively. Uh, defensively, the Lakers are probably uh, you know as good as anybody who's played defense in the NBA this year. Uh, and LeBron is a big reason why. I think he's bought into Frank Vogel's defensive philosophy. And, uh, you know, Jeff Van Gundy has this great line when people ask him to compare Jordan and LeBron. He said, comparison is the thief of joy. Yeah. Like, why do we have to compare? Why can't we just, you know, love this guy for who he is? And I would quite honestly say that LeBron's game is much more like another guy that you didn't see play that I saw, that I watched uh, uh, grow up and play in high school, college, and the NBA. And that was Magic Johnson. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about Magic on those Laker teams is he was just a, such a great playmaker at six foot nine. And what we're watching with LeBron is uh, is not only a, a, an incredible talent, but an incredible player for how the game should be played the right way. Um, he's not an individual talent like an Allen Iverson or or even Jordan at times where he would just take over games. And LeBron certainly taken over games, but. I, I think his greatest gift is what an incredibly talented superstar teammate he's been to all through these years. He's handled his business correctly, uh, by and large, off the court. Yeah, that's the uh, big thing for a- me. The fact that he was touted as a superstar since he was 15 and never had any off-court issues, that's amazing. Well, I think the renaissance of the NBA, we've talked about this a couple times, the, the renaissance of the NBA in recent years, in the last decade, has been that the super the superstars are genuinely likable, and if you don't like them because they win too much, you got to give them credit because very very few of these guys, if, if very many of them at all, you don't you don't hear negative stuff off the court. Yep. You know when you talk about a, <clears throat> a Steph Curry or a Clay Thompson or Kevin Durant or you know the international guys like Greek Freak and more recently Doncic, Pau Gasol, Marcus Gasol, these guys are great citizens. You know and. Uh, we saw that this year with the social justice issue. LeBron is at the head of that movement. Um, so I give the guy a lot of credit, man. I mean, see, he's easy not to like because he's a super villain. If you're not a you know Laker fan or if you, if you weren't a Heat fan or a Cavalier fan, but the, the guys had an incredible run and we just have to go along with for the ride and enjoy this journey. Yep, and that's what we've been so. doing and that's probably what we're going to be doing for another however many years because he has shown no signs of slowing down whatsoever. Yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think about that. I'd say he's got three more good years in him, you know, if he keeps keeps his body in shape the way he does. Hey, speaking of Mark and Pau Gasol, it's not official. Uh, I tried to get conf- confirmation on this as we're as we're taping on a Thursday after game one. But uh, the rumor is that uh, Mark Gasol, who is a free agent with the Raptors, is going to be heading back to FC Barcelona. Now, the Barcelona club has denied this. Uh, coach Yasakavicic, their, their, their first-year head coach, and uh, no, no stranger to European basketball, says, we have not had any contact with him. But uh, the, the rumors are hot and heavy out there that uh, he is going to end his career back in Spain with F- FC Barcelona, so I would think by the by the time we meet again next Thursday on our World of Basketball podcast, we'll have a little more information on that. But not a surprise. I think I think Mark is thirty seven. Um, he's had an incredible career both overseas and then in the NBA with uh, you know with the Grizzlies first and winning a title last year with Toronto. So it would not surprise me, given what's going on with the NBA right now. And when we're going to start up again for twenty one, twenty two, but you and I will keep our eye on that, Chris. Yeah, absolutely, and we'll try to get him on the show. And, 
We'll see what we can do. We'll try to get, a, we'll try to get him on the show. No question. I know you will work on that. So, uh, oh, yeah. hey, with that, um, you'll really like this uh, podcast. Scott Morrison is a guy, a name that you're probably not familiar with, but he's been a, a, a an assistant coach now for Brad Stevens for a number of years. Uh, from Prince Edward Island uh, all the way to the uh, uh, to the NBA with the Celtics. Uh, and not only do we hear about his journey, but he gives you incredible insight on the last three months in the NBA bubble. So without further ado, here's my great chat with Boston Celtics' Scott Morrison. First of all, welcome home to – Coach Scott Morrison, back from the bubble. Uh, he's back with his family, and we're just honored to have uh, Scott Morrison, assistant coach of the Boston Celtics, a native of uh, the Spud Island. How's that, Coach? Yeah, not bad, not the, bad. The, the, million dollar, the million acre farm, I've done my research, yeah. Prince Edward Island. <laughs> and uh, But honestly, it's great to have you on. We really appreciate it, especially since you have been quite busy the last three months. So the first question is, what was it like coming home to your wife, Suzanne and Max? How old is Max now? And what was it like not seeing him for a couple months? Well, to be honest with you, I, I actually won't see him until tomorrow. Um, wow. Cause they, they, uh, they got to Canada probably around week six of the bubble and they've been okay. home with, with our extended family. I took one day here in Boston to just kind of get uh, things tied up, some loose ends, some errands, and then uh, I'm going to drive out there tomorrow. We're going to see them, but I'm, I'm really excited. It's been uh, a long, long stretch. When I left, yeah. he could barely, he was just starting to think about crawling and now he's walking around and um, doing all kinds of stuff. So I'm excited to get home and chase him around and, and just, just hug both of them because it's been, like I said, it's been a long haul, but, but 85 yeah. days since I saw them. Wow. So you, you will drive home. How long a drive is that back to, uh, to home? Boston, Boston. To, to Boston to Prince Edward Island is about ten hours, so uh, we we do it all the time, and uh, yep. I'll probably stop in Maine for bites to eat, and then and keep on trucking, and hopefully they'll they'll let me in the country with all the stuff that's going on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, uh, I'm I'm excited for you because I know how much of a sacrifice this has been for everybody, and uh, I guess that's my first question. Like everybody wants to know this. The basketball has been fabulous. The competition, unbelievable. The uh, I think the discipline of the players and the staffs and everybody staying healthy, but just your general overall impression of you personally being in that environment for nearly three months, what was that experience like? Well, it was, it took some getting used to when we first got there. It was, it was actually kind of nice to be in a bubble type environment where you could kind of relax a little bit. We, my wife and I were always concerned and, and try to follow the rules when the quarantine was going on. Uh, to not, you know, bring the, the virus into the house for, for Max's sake more than anything. So getting there was kind of a, a little bit of a weight off your shoulders so you can kind of relax and, and not have to worry all the time about what you're touching, what you're doing. Um, but once we got used to it, once we got used to the routine, it was just nice to be back with the basketball team and, and to have games to prepare for and, and players to work with and things like that. I, I kind of made a promise to myself that I wouldn't complain the whole time because at the end of the day, we were getting tr treated really well. We were on a resort. I was going to the pool, you know, the, the lifeguard gave me and, and Joe Mazzula, one of the other coaches, the goggles to use while we were there. Um, so it, it was a good, a good lifestyle, the only negative, and it was a big negative, but being away from family. Um, and some people took that harder than others. But I remember one coach's meeting, Coach Stevens was kind of talking about potential options for the future for the NBA, what their choices were. And 
there was some early discussions and um, I kind of just stood up and said, Hey, like I'm from Prince Edward Island, Canada, and I'm on a resort with the top 20 teams in the NBA, the best players and coaches in the world. Uh, there's lots of people from where I'm from that have to go away and leave home for months at a time to work and, and just to make a living. I'm not going to complain for this one time thing. If I, if you know, 10 or 15 or 20 or even 25 year old me had this opportunity, I would have jumped at it. So um, it was tough being away from home, but now that it's over, I'm glad we, we, we experienced it and got that kind of uh, unique that will probably never happen again chance to be in that hotel with, uh, you know, LeBron James is the, the Giannis is whoever you name it. They're all there and we were all kind of in the same situation. So it was real cool. I can't wait to, we'll, we'll dive into like what an amazing journey you've had seriously from Prince Edward Island to, uh, sitting on an NBA bench playing, you know, coaching in the playoffs. It's just amazing. What was the, um, the, give, give me an idea. Cause you pretty much played every other day for a, a, over a month. What was the daily routine? Like, how did it differ than, you know, the normal NBA season with the travel and, uh, some of us, from some of us outside the bubble said, well, they're playing at a high level cause they're rested. They don't have to travel, but I also have to think and I've told young coaches this like mental health is the next frontier in coaching. And I have to think there was some mental health stress issues for everybody, but what was the daily routine like? And how did you, how did everybody navigate that? Well, the daily routine was proper. I mean, you know, if you just took a, a single day, it's basically the exact same as it would have been any other time around the road. You know, we were, you get yeah. up in a hotel room, you go to team breakfast, you have a coaches meeting, you have a players meeting, you go to shoot around. Uh, some guys shoot extra, you watch film, uh, you know, you take a nap or you work out in the afternoon and then you're, you're off to the arena. Uh, so that, that in itself was kind of the same. The only big difference was it was the exact same place every day. Um, right. So, you know, we kind of joke about it when you're there that <laughs> every day is Wednesday, you know, no, no one knows what day it is. It's either a game day or a practice day or an off day. And we, we only had a couple off days. So, um, the routine was easy to turn over probably the time where you really felt it, you really felt the bubble and that mental stuff that you're talking about was the times, the two or three times where we had more than one day between games. Cause then, you know, coach gives the guys a day off and you, you kind of get your work done earlier. And then you're just sitting there saying, you know, well, what, what pool am I going to go to? What am I going to sit in my room? Am I going to watch TV? You don't really have many options. And those are the days that where you, you know, you kind of miss the family a little bit more and get a little more stir crazy. But luckily for us, it wasn't, too many times like that. It was pretty steady. Like you said, you know, game day, practice day, game day. And, uh, with the playoffs being so intense, um, you know, it was nice actually not having to fly back and forth, but the, the, probably the biggest thing we missed was the atmospheres of the arenas. And we played three teams where the atmospheres and the cities would have been, would have been on fire. Um, and we kind of missed that experience having, having been through it before, but the basketball side and the routine side was, was the same as it would have been any other time. Did you personally, I'm just curious, I mean, because, I mean, obviously the intensity of an NBA season, you play about 100 games. You came from college in Canada, G League, now the NBA. We'll get into all that. But did you personally become a better coach over the last three months just because you guys were locked into studying? You know, obviously playoffs are different. You're going to see the same team up to seven times. But I'm just curious from a basketball junkie's perspective, did you become a better coach, do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, at least I learned a lot. Uh, I know I learned, I think you learn every playoffs because you, you go so far deep into the other team during the regular season when you have two or three days in advance for, for a game. Sorry, you have one day in advance. For those of us doing scouts, you have two or three days to prepare. Um, you kind of do a bare bones thing. 
you do your best with, with the time that you have. The guys can only take in so much anyway in, in that short you know time frame. So you don't learn a whole lot during the course of the regular season. But then when the playoffs come around and you're anticipating what the next adjustment will be for the opponent, you know, what are they going to do here? What's the rotation going to be? Uh, who do they attack? Uh, what do they run with certain lineups? Things like that, you get the chance to go in a lot deeper. And I think that stuff sticks with you as you move on for the next season and the season after that. Um, the other thing is just having a little bit extra time. Um, all of us are dedicated to, to coaching and putting the work in. But when you're going back and forth home, home in a way, you still have those home responsibilities that you have to take care of, whether you, you like it or not. And um, in our case, we had nothing else to do except uh, watch film or, or think about things. Sometimes it leads to overthinking. But for someone like myself, I was kind of happy. Hey, I have two hours here with nothing to do. All right, let's, let's watch all uh, Miami's pick and rolls with so-and-so involved. And, you know, just a little bit further than I would have been able to go if uh, we had the other stuff going on with the travel and everything. So I think just by default and putting that extra time in, we definitely learn more um, about the game, about the opponents. And um, coaches had a lot more time to think about what they were going to do, I think, than in a normal situation. Yeah, well, i got to tell you, now we'll talk about, you know, the we'll talk about the Heat and the Lakers later. But uh, anybody who's a basketball fan, we were watching from outside the bubble, just the intensity of the games. I don't, I, I'm sure you could feel it. You were right there. But it, it, the way it came out on TV was phenomenal when you think of the best players in the world in that environment. I don't, I don't know how you felt being up close and personal. No, no, no question. Um, the atmosphere you kind of miss, you kind of miss that like juice in the arena that you feel when you're walking out into the garden and you know, you're getting ready to play Miami or Philadelphia or having been to Toronto. I, I was really looking forward to playing at Toronto in the playoffs because I think um, the garden – uh, Philly, LA, when the Lakers are playing, um, and then Toronto are the best atmospheres to, to, to be a part of. So I kind of miss that. But once the ball goes up, it's all about the next possession. You know, what, what adjustment has Bolster made or Nurse made? What defense are they in? Things like that. So it becomes becomes the same as any other game. And maybe the lack of distractions in the arena actually helps you get a little bit more focused into what you're doing. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now tell me this, uh, Prince Edward Island. I think your dad was a coach. Was he not? Yeah. My dad was, a when I was my earliest memories of being like four or five years old, he was a college women's coach. Um, and then I think when I was six or seven, he switched to the men's team and then he took that men's team all the way until I graduated. Got it. So you kind of grew up around the game, but Prince Edward Island, I, now I, full disclosure, when I was a young guy in college, I worked camp up in, uh, Montreal for Richie Spears. Yeah, I know Richie really well. Uh, he was an assistant coach. Um, my first job was with Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, with the women's team. I did a one-year assistant and then one-year interim head coach. And Richie was with the men's team during that time. Um, I actually went to a house party one time at this house. I was doing grad school when I, when I first started coaching. So I was doing grad school at Dalhousie. And um, some of my friends were over visiting. We went to this house party. We were kind of in the yard making some noise. Like There's a lot of people there. And out of nowhere, this, this lunatic, or at least we thought a lunatic, started chasing us with a pitchfork like that you'd pitch hay with. And uh, we all ran. And then about like, you know, 10 seconds into my run, I looked back and I realized it was Richie. Uh, it was his neighbors that had the party. So I stopped and, and, and said, hey, Richie, it's, it's just Scott here. Don't worry. And he's like, okay, you guys get the hell out of here. Um, but he's a legendary guy in my circles, um, both from his playing days, his coaching days, and then. Uh, kind of like his, I guess, retirement years now. He's still involved. Yeah, it was my first experience. I was a college kid's Canadian basketball. Eddie Pomacala, the coach at uh, 
Bishop's University, now the AD. I met Eddie there. This is 40 years ago, uh, but my first experience was uh, in Montreal right after the 76 Olympics, and I worked Richie's camp at Dawson College. So, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of memories. And then, of course, Steve Konchalski, for those of us who grew up in the New York area and know the name Tom Konchalski, one of the great uh, recruiting scouting gurus in, in high school basketball in the States, uh, I think Steve just retired. Did he not? Was this his final year or uh, I, I'm not up? sure either either this year or next year. I know they have a they have like a coach in waiting uh, young guy that, that I coached against actually um, years back. But uh, Coach K, as we call him, he's the Canadian Coach K. Uh, I hate I hated him for a better part of my life because their school was rivals with my dad's school. Uh, and then I ended up playing against him. But then I got a chance to work with him in some of our national team programs and uh, just a great dude. So I have a lot of love and respect for uh, the Canadian coach K. So growing up, growing up where you grew up, did you like, what point did you say, uh, obviously like a lot of young people who grow up in their dad's a coach, it's a natural gravitation, but uh, you were a pretty good player. I know you were a good shooter. That's, that's the word on you. You could knock it down, but how did you, how did this, how did the coaching evolve for you? It typically evolves because you see your dad doing something he loves doing and you decide like, this is not a bad lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my, it was a little different with my dad. We, we lived in a town of about 300 people. Uh, pretty much everyone there was a farmer or a fisherman. And my mom and dad were both high school teachers, and he actually coached the team part-time. He was the last part-time coach in Canada. Um, so really, it was just uh, – it wasn't like a money thing for him. It was just he loved coaching, loved being a part of the university. Um, and he was there for maybe 25 years as, as a part-time salary coach but full-time effort coach as you could say so I learned a lot about the game from him and just how to run a program because he was doing basically everything by himself recruiting fundraising things like that um, I was all about playing my whole life uh, I wanted to be a pro player uh, I played baseball too I was probably better at baseball but I just loved basketball so much I couldn't give it up and then when I graduated from University of Prince Edward Island where, where my dad coached me um, I went to Germany to play a lower level wasn't very glamorous. It was my first time being any further than an hour away from my, my where I grew up. And I kind of just said, hey, this isn't really what I wanted. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be like. And, you know, I think to stay the best way for me to stay involved with the game and to be competitive in the game is to start coaching. So I went back to my grad school in Halifax, which is about three hours away from home. And a legendary female coach a uh, women's basketball coach named Carolyn Savoy asked me to be her an assistant because she knew me from playing and knew my dad. And that's how I got my start in coaching. And uh, she actually was kind of a disciple or a friend of uh, Pat Summit um, and learned a lot from her, went to work camp for, for Coach Summit that first first summer, and and the rest kind of just fell into place for me. How'd you get on the men's side? Because you started out on the women's side. How did that? How did that gravitate? Yeah, so I did a year assistant for Coach Savoy, and she took a sabbatical and wrote a book. And obviously the, the big NCAA coaches don't take sabbaticals and give their assistant the team for a year, but that's somewhat somewhat common in Canada. We don't make the big bucks in Canada, so um, you have to reward the coaches with professional development opportunities, things like that sometimes. So uh, she took a sabbatical, named me the interim coach. I was 24. I was still – I just graduated from my, my graduate school. Um, so I took the team. Uh, went over budget and ran the financial side into the ground, but had a great time doing it and got some players as a result of it. Um, and we did, we did okay, but I became good friends with the men's coach at the time. And he was just, 
in his first year at that school, he had, he had coached at a school called Laurentian in uh, Sudbury, sure. Ontario, north yeah. northern part of the, of the country. And they used, to, they used to play Division One teams in the preseason. I I remember we played Laurentian when I was at Ohio University. Oh, great! Okay, well, so, they so would, John's they, dad yeah. was probably the coach. Peter, yeah, Gamble was the coach of that team, most likely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. he was he was pretty connected in northern Ontario, and a job came up at Lakehead University in the summer. I knew Coach Savoy was coming back. I didn't really want to be her assistant again, not because I didn't, you know, learn from her or respect her. I just wanted to keep moving up. Um, so John had said, why don't you apply for this Lakehead men's job? They were one of the worst teams in the country, uh, one of the most isolated parts of the country, if not the most for, for schools. And I actually applied for the Lakehead women's job like three months earlier and didn't get a call back. So I said, John, this is pretty dumb. Like, I, I didn't get a call back for the women's job. I have no men's experience. This ain't going to happen. And he's like, well, just put my name down as a reference this time. Uh, he had a connection with the AD there. And sure enough, they called me, uh, interviewed me. Uh, I think I was a third choice. Two people turned it down because they didn't want to live there. When they got there for the interview and they saw how isolated it was, they were like, <laughs> hell no. Um, but I was well, wait a minute. Th- Thunder Bay has how many people in it? How many people uh, live in Thunder Bay? I about 100,000 there. Um, okay. All right. But 80,000 of them are frozen from, from January, <laughs> from December until April. You got to thaw, right. thaw them out for the summer. So Golf season is what? One week in July? Yeah. I mean, actually, it's a great spot in the summer. There's no... Yeah, I bet it is. You know, it's yeah. not too hot and it's... it's it's you know, yeah. The air is so fresh and stuff like that. And there's lots of good lakes. But in the winter, it's yeah. like an icebox. Uh, not, right. I'm not even exaggerating. So yeah. anyway, I got that job and, and I was a third choice. And that was kind of the story of my, my career for a lot of the, the moves that I've made. Never been the right, the first choice, but made it work somehow. You know, I, I looked uh, before the this podcast, Thunder Bay is on a par with International Falls, Minnesota. It's, you know, it's up, it's, you know, the same. And, and I would imagine summertime's got, with the lake up there, it's got to, Mike, it's got to be unbelievable, right? Just for the when it when it is nice weather it's got to be a beautiful place no question yeah june july august the weather's good and the lakes are good and i still try to go up there yeah. every couple couple of summers just to to kind of get back to nature and see my friends yeah so how did you here here's one thing i don't know and i, I didn't want to research i just wanted to ask you how did you get from from the thunder wolves of lakehead university to the g league where i met you and you were coaching in maine how does that happen how did that happen and of course the g league really has set up everything for you to be with the celtics so how did you make that jump it's a big jump so uh we did we started out slow at lakehead i was there 10 years but our last four seasons we were like a top five team in the country and um i got a chance to work with the junior national team for four summers and kind of built my resume up a little bit my ad couldn't afford to pay me any more than i was already getting from my for this next contract that was coming up so i said okay Thinking back to how I got my start, I said, why don't you give me a sabbatical um, for one year? I had seven guys graduating. I'll, I'll still recruit. I'll take a sabbatical, and I'll go learn something. Um, I had thought I would volunteer in the NBA. That was my plan. I tried to contact all 30 teams. I don't think any teams got back to me. Maybe one or two got back to me and said, thanks, no thanks. So then I realized, okay, I, I, I didn't really grasp the situation. here. Like, I was pretty naive about that. So Roy Rana, who I worked with uh, with the U19 Canada team, uh, he's now with the Kings. He said, hey, why don't you try the, the D-League, the, the D-League at the time. So I had two coaches on Facebook that happened to be head coaches in the D-League, both for international reasons. And Mike Taylor was a coach at Maine. He had a lot of international connections with Germany. and um, I, We had a mutual friend. So I had contacted him about a kid maybe four or five years earlier and just had him on Facebook. So I sent him a message, explained my situation, and he said, yeah, sure, if you want to volunteer – 
Um, you can come down here. You can, you're going to have to basically be an intern. So I'd be like doing the laundry, driving the bus, setting up for practice. Um, but I could also work guys out after practice. I could also do some scouting. Um, so I said, sure, that's all I got. So I took it and I figured I'd learn some, you know, pro game style of play and some pick and roll stuff that I'd hope to improve. I was going to study some uh, offensive stuff while I was there and then get back to Lakehead and, and pick up where I left off. So I actually did the whole year with Maine. I was the league's oldest intern. A friend of mine, Jim Moran, who's on the front bench with Portland. Um, I know Jimmy. Who you yep. also know from Long Island. Yeah. Uh, yep. he was also an intern that year. He had just finished playing overseas. So we we're like, we were like grumpy old men for interns. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it worked out for both of us in the end. So yeah, I did that year and went back to Lakehead expecting to just pick up where I left off. And, uh, Mike Taylor left that year as the head coach in Maine. So, uh, the Celtics interviewed some people and I was one of them and, and, uh, ended up getting the job. That's great. So during that year, you're an assistant or, you know, even an intern. How much contact did you have with, you know, uh, Celtics front office guys? Because I know it's a quick trip for those who don't know. You, uh, Celtics will put the players in, in Maine. You, you've had them as a head coach. But they, you get to know the front office guys, the Austin Ainges and uh, Dave Lewins, guys like that. So was that, was that pretty much how the connections evolved? For sure. I mean – the fact that we were interns, Jim and I, we didn't travel with the team. So we would get the buses all packed up and the, you know, the uniforms packed up, get the guys, you know, sent off to the airport. And then we would oftentimes go to Boston ourselves to watch practice or go to a game or maybe just meet, you know, meet whoever was around at the time. And they got a chance to know us that way. So um, that was, that was probably a big, a big plus for me is, is not traveling. When I first got there, I was like, man, this kind of, this kind of sucks. I don't get to travel with the team. Um, but we made the most of it. We had a good time while we were there. And uh, obviously that paid off for me in a, in a big time way. You know, uh, full disclosure, Jimmy Moran came to my basketball camp at Manhattan College. I did not offer him a scholarship. He went, went to William & Mary and had a great career, as you know, in Spain. Uh, and so we do, we joke about that all the time. I told him he wasn't good enough, you know. <laughs> but uh <laughs> he's he he's it's it's a great it's, that's a great story that you guys started together um all right let me let me just ask you because this is what people really uh, uh, would love to know um the biggest misconception for a guy from from the spud island you know uh prince edward island to the nba what's the biggest misconception about nba players that the average fans would not realize probably that that they the average fan might think they don't work that hard or that they're, they're kind of prima donnas when it comes to being coached. And I think that there might be a couple guys like that out there, but for the most part, these guys put in a lot of time. They're very, um, you know, diligent about their routines and their, their preparation for games and they want to be coached. Maybe you can't yell and scream at them. Um, like maybe I did at Lakehead 15, 20 years ago, times have changed, but also the way these guys are, um, you know, they, they, you got to respect the fact that they want to learn and get better and they're willing to be coached by even someone like me who never played in the NBA. But if you show that them, show them that you're, you know, invested in their improvement, their well-being, uh, and you're putting time in, you know, whether it be with video or on a the court, then they, they start to trust you the fact that, that you can help them. Um, and I think as a fan, I mean, I was a fan for 35 years before I had any taste of, of professional basketball and, I probably would have been guilty of the same thing as thinking these guys, you know, kind of think they have the world figured out and probably would be hard to coach. But at the end of the day, I think we're doing a lot of coaching 
and it just doesn't maybe look the exact same as it would in high school or college, but it's still, it's still getting done. Um, what makes Brad Stevens uh, so unique? So that's probably the question I get asked more than anything. And the answer I've kind of developed um, in thinking about it and kind of observing because I started getting asked that question very early on um, and now having been around for six years, I, I feel like I know him pretty well. I think his what sets him apart is he prepares as much or more than anyone in terms of watching film. He has a great memory. Um, like he'll, he'll think of a play that we ran three years ago in the third regular season game against Philadelphia. And I pull that clip. I'm pretty sure we ran it that game and everyone's looking at him like you're crazy, but he's usually right. Um, but that's stuff you can't really teach. Uh, he has those, those traits, but the biggest thing is he has those two traits and then combine that with the fact that when crunch time happens and everything's on the line and there's bad calls and players are losing their mind and the fans are going crazy and it's intense and you're nervous, he can remain calm and access all that information. Um, I think a lot of coaches have the information up there, but they get frantic or panic or get worked up and they can't really remain collected enough to use the, the knowledge that they have to help the team win. And I think that's why he's so good late game, especially is that he can kind of calm down, remember what he has in his, in his, the back of his, the back recesses of his brain, and put, a, put that onto the whiteboard and the guys execute it and get a bucket or get a stop or whatever the case may be. So without giving away coaching secrets, but I'm really curious, does, does, do you guys, does he go into games with certain ATOs in his head, late game stuff, or do you think it's just the recesses of his brain? No, I think he, I think both. I think both. He'll, he'll have a few that he plans on, on looking at. Um, sometimes it might be something that he's considering putting in the playbook. He wants to see it as an ATO first. Other times it's something that maybe worked or he saw someone else use it effectively against the opponent. And then there's, I think there's still some other stuff that he sees during the course of the game, like, hey, they're playing this, this action this certain way. This other ATO that maybe I didn't think of would probably be effective based on what they've been doing this game. Right. Uh, since this is a World of Basketball podcast, I want to ask you about Daniel Tice because not a lot of basketball fans, unless, you, unless you're a fan of the Celtics, like my buddy here, Chris Tyler, uh, Daniel Tice uh, – it's not a household name and like a lot of NBA players is a really valuable player. Uh, but since he is German and he is a key guy for you, uh, just tell me about him and how he's matured since he's been a part of your, you know, team program. For sure. So Tice, um, some people would say he's the, the best value contract in the league this season. Um, from the start of, from the start of the season to the end, I mean, he makes I think $5 million a year. He starts for, one of the top teams in the league, Eastern Conference finalist. He doesn't get a lot of, you know, media because he doesn't score that much, but a lot of the points everyone else is scoring is a result of what he's doing, uh, whether it be his ball movement, um, his passing. He's a pretty good roller for his size. He can get above the rim and, and, and catch lobs, so he's a threat to bring in tags from the corners. And this past season, we really had him perfect the, the kind of the Gortat pick-and-roll screen where he sets the ball screen, the, the guard slows down, and he then rescreens the, the big who's dropped back. So he, it was, we were a real tough team to, to play and drop coverage because of the, as we call it, the Gortat screen. He had probably, you know, I'd say one and a half per game of those, which is doesn't seem like a lot. But when you add that to your to your pick-and-roll attack from the previous season, that, that really brings your offense up quite a bit. So he didn't get a lot of the, the attention, but I think a lot of the attention other guys got were they owe Tice a lot for, for what he's done on the floor. 
you, you know, that Gortat screen reminds me it's, and it again, not to get into the weeds on a podcast, but one of the things all my NBA friends tell me is we've learned way more from players than they've learned from us. And sometimes things just happen in games naturally because a player figures out that he can do something. And then all of a sudden it becomes part of the league's repertoire. And I got to think that Martin, Martin Gortat was always thought of as the best screener in the league. And I've seen Tice uh, perfect that now. I, Mark is smart and he worked well together on that. Uh, but it's interesting how I, I wonder how much you've learned from players just being around them, you know, as a, as a pro coach. And I, I know you have a lot to offer them, but how much do you ever say to them, well, why are you thinking about that? And then you say, man, that's really, that's really smart. Uh, no, no question. And that's what I like to use film for. So we, we've been assigned, as most teams do, we were assigned individual players. And one, one of the you know tasks that we do with them is watch their, their game clips or watch any clips for that matter. Maybe it's a different player that they admire or, or similar player than league as to them. So that's when I like to kind of just pull some clips and say, Hey, what were you thinking here? As opposed to saying, you know, should you, should you have done this or you, this was good. This was bad. I'll say, Hey, what, why did you do this? I'll just put a question mark beside the clip and say, well, you know, what was your line of thinking here? And that's how you get into their mind. I feel a little bit to see, you know, maybe something that we don't see from the sidelines that they see because they're in the heat of the action um, or, or a certain play call. Like, Hey, why did you kind of abort this play call this way? And they'll say, because this, this, and this. And then maybe I can go to Coach Stevens and say, hey, maybe this is a adjustment you should make on this play because of these reasons. And I think a good coach, as you, as you kind of alluded to, will be open to hearing what the guys have to say because at the end of the day, they're the ones out there having to deal with it. And I do really uh, respect Brad when he is going through maybe a game plan for a playoff team or an adjustment. And he'll ask, you know, Marcus or he'll ask Tice, what do you guys think? Like, what, what, how do you want to play this? You're the ones that have to do it. They probably tried a couple of different ways, whether it be by accident or not. And they'll come up with a, a way to, to play something or, or execute a certain play based on what they think is right. And I think it's easier to get buy-in obviously too, when you do that, because the guys, the idea is coming from the guys themselves. You mentioned Marcus Smart. That's a guy that uh, I've watched since ninth grade in Dallas and then covered him in the big 12 at Oklahoma state. Um, what is Marcus smart like to be around on a daily basis? Uh, I, I love Marcus. Um, he's a funny guy. We spent three hours at the pool one day in a bubble talking about conspiracy theories. He was breaking down JFK, <laughs> uh, landing on the moon, bin Laden, you name it. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how much of it I believed, but he was definitely entertaining right. to present it. Um, he's, yeah. got, he's got a good yeah. charisma about him. And yeah. we actually have a little bit of history before um, the Celtics stuff because he played for Team USA um, for two years in the U19s. So yes. We played against yeah. him with the qualifiers, and then we played against him in the World Championships in Prague. Oh, we yeah. I was, I was in Prague. I, I don't know if we met back then, but I was there, and I was with Roy and Chris Eggie. Yeah, Eggie was uh, one of our guys. Chris, I'm, wear, I'm, wear, I'm wearing a Harvard shirt right now for, in honor of Chris Eggie. Um, but, yeah, I was I was there. I didn't realize you were Roy's assistant that year. Yeah, I mean, you, you probably wouldn't have seen me unless you were out till about <laughs> 4 or 5 in the morning that trip. But well, um, I was. I was a couple of <laughs> times, actually. <laughs> it, was, it was a tough spot to but go to bed. We, yeah, we didn't run in the same circles. But that's a, that was a beautiful city. And uh, and I did I did enjoy my time in Prague, actually. Uh 
but yeah, so Marcus was on that team. Yeah, so um, I kind of forgot actually. And then um, this past season, we were looking at different zones we could potentially run. And I knew Roy had run a certain kind of more unique zone that that year with the team. So I pulled a bunch of clips from that tournament, and then I realized I jogged my memory that Marcus was actually on that team. So we had a, we had a good laugh about that. And I think I think Coach showed a couple clips from the 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 edit that I gave him, and I was trying to see if Marcus would catch the fact that he was on that team, and he did. He he's one of the smartest basketball players I, I've ever been around. Um, we talk about learning something from guys. He he can break down a play. He might watch the end of the. Um, Lakers Nuggets game, for example, and break down exactly, you know, what LA was going to do. Um, you know, why Plumlee did or didn't miss up the switch, you know, as an example. And, uh, you think that he's, he's, cause he, the way he plays so hard, you think maybe he's not thinking the game. Um, but he's, he's the smartest player that I've, I've been around. Um, really a good memory in terms of what actions teams are running, knows their play calls, all that kind of stuff. So he's, he, he makes you a better coach. No question. How how does how does his intensity uh, rub off positively on the rest of your guys? Because that's the thing I've always loved about him. He's he's had this chip on his shoulder from the very very beginning. I, I think it what's make it's probably separates him from other players. How does that intensity wear uh, with his teammates? It's just one of those things that you can't you can't really, I guess not be inspired by his play when you're around him. And obviously as a coach, you can't go out there and run through a wall for the team, but it's hard to imagine someone watching him as a teammate and not wanting to go out and dive on the loose ball that he just, you know, went through three people into the third row for a ball that he had 1% chance of getting. But the thing is he, every now and then he gets those and that's what makes him a great player. So it makes him a winning player. You got to take the good with the bad. Sometimes he might throw up a bad shot here and there, but it, it's easier to tolerate that. Um, when you know he's going to give it all he has on both ends of the floor every night. And some nights he hits him. Um, so it's better than a guy who maybe give you half effort every now and then and still chuck up a bad one because then, then the team starts groaning and rolling their eyes. But at least with Smart, you're like, all right, Smart, you know. Uh, you know you know he's going to be down there on the next play, pressuring the ball, trying to take a charge, putting his body on the line. And that gets you juice with your teammates, with your coaches, and I think inspires everyone to just kind of raise their – their Tommy Tommy Heinsohn points level a little bit. <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of Marcus, it, uh, Jeff Van Gundy had a great line during the uh, during this this last run. I don't know if you heard it. Uh, he stole it, but I, I I've tweeted it out. If you're juiceless, you're useless. <laughs> <laughs> and Marcus is never juiceless. <laughs> no, he's got he's got juice, and he's he's the guy you want to walk into the playground with. Um, you know, when you're going to a strange spot because you know, he's not yes. going to have any fear. And if you had exactly. some fear, you can just, you know, get, get on his shoulders and he'll, he'll take care of business. So by the way, in Prague, there was an NBA all-star that was a backup center on Serbia. Y- yes. So <laughs> yeah. Jokic. So another, another, another experience I had um, that I had a revelation a couple weeks ago is I, I did the hoop summit with Roy. Roy ran, I coached the hoop summit for years for the international side. And the, actually the same year I volunteered, in Maine, I want to say it was 2014 Hoop Summit, I think. Um, Jamal Murray was kind of a breakout game for him. I worked with the team for the week uh, as kind of Roy's, you know, just the guy to help out with the drills and, and keep some stats, things like that. So I, I always refer to that team. You know, Capello was on the team. Carl Anthony Towns is on the team. Um, Moutier was on the team. Jamal, so forth. And after one of the Denver games, I don't know if it was you or someone else, maybe Mark Bain, who's a Nike guy from Canada, tweeted out a picture of that team 
I did. I did tweet that. That was you. Okay. Yeah. So lo and behold, yeah. Jokic yeah. is on the team. I, I didn't even drop yeah. my phone. I did not remember yeah. being there. I did not remember being on the team. I never yeah. thought to follow him. And I, I was blown away. So then I could I just started telling anyone I could, like, hey, this guy was on this team. We don't even remember. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, that's <laughs> yes. how much this guy's improved. Or, or maybe that's just kind of, I guess, on us to maybe judge a book by its cover in a short time frame. But, man, he's yeah. one of the best now. Yeah, you know, Don Showalter, tweet, uh, the coach of USA basketball, he tweeted that picture out and reminded me that uh, USA won that game. But the next year, Jamal played – he played – Jamal Murray played the next year and had 35 – and uh, Roy's Nike international team beat the USA. And and I did the game on ESPN. Jamal was spectacular, you know. And then, of course, I saw Jamal. And this is what I want to get into with you. I saw Jamal that summer with Jay Triano's national team in Toronto at the Pan Am Games. And um, I wasn't going to get into Jamal, but I think it's a good segue here. Let's Let's talk about Let's talk about this first. I, I said this when Melvin Edgem was playing at Iowa State because Naz Long was coming in and uh, R.J. Barrett was a young player. And I said Toronto will be, will put out as good a high school basketball as any city in North America in the next five to ten years. And I honestly think that I've been proven correct um, because of the way basketball's exploded. Tell me your perspective of basketball Canadian basketball and why why it has become as good as it's become, say, in the last 10 to 15 years? Well, there's been a few, I think, research projects on this exact topic, and I, I agree. I think you're right. Uh, being one of the only Canadians around, you know, the team here, we often argue with the staff members, like, what city is the best team, you know? And I think L.A. could compete with Toronto in terms of overall, but in terms of recent years, like you said, I think Toronto probably has the edge on, on pretty much every city. I think that we're just seeing, to, to summarize it quickly without getting into the, the, the details of everything, I think the biggest thing is the fact that we're seeing a generation of kids that grew up with the Raptors their whole life. And just being a guy who grew up in a place without NBA players or any real real talent, you don't tend to dream or think it's possible to achieve something that big when there's no one around it that has done it. So kids growing up in Toronto, they see now more and more kids ahead of them that came up the same way they did the same teams, the same programs, same city, and have made it to the NBA. So right off the bat, they don't rule anything out. They dream big. They work hard to achieve, you know, lofty goals. And I think it's all as a result of the Raptors being there in the nineties and these kids not knowing anything else, you know. Um, I was always a Knicks fan because by the time the Raptors came into the league, I was I was a diehard Knicks fan. I never switched over. But for the kids that were born in Toronto, I mean, that's, you know, the Raptors fans are insane. And to have that kind of right in your backyard, it's a lot easier to convince yourself that you could make it than for someone like myself growing up in PEI with uh, no real exposure to that level of basketball. So some of my Canadian friends tell me that in, in many ways, as much as Steve Nash is beloved, rightfully so, that really Vince Carter was the impetus for all the all these young players, maybe even more so than Steve. And, and of course, because of the Raptors and the NBA. Would, they, would you concur with that? Yeah, I would agree. I think, And also, I think people in Toronto forget that the Raptors are mostly Americans. Uh, but, so they don't, you know, they don't, um, they aren't prejudiced against Vince for that reason. He's 
he's their idol. He's the guy they aspire to be. Um, when Nash was dominating or playing real well in the 2000 Olympics, Vince Carter still over, overshadowed him with that dunk over Frederick Weiss. <laughs> right, um, exactly. So everyone remembers yeah. where they were when that dunk happened, but they don't necessarily remember where they were when Nash had 15 assists against Australia in game one. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, now the other – it's interesting because Jay, Jay Triano tells a story – about Steve Nash. And at that time, the Canadian team wasn't maybe as well-funded as it could have been. And that Steve Nash, and I, I don't think Steve's ever told the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway, because it's a podcast. But Jay Triano told me that Steve went underneath the, each door of every player and put an envelope of extra money, spending money for being in, you know, Sydney in the Olympics. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's obviously a, an idol, but, uh, the, the other, the other, the other thing about, and I want to get to Steve in a second, but the other thing about Canadian basketball that I have surmised and my Canadian friends have agreed is the immigration policy of, you got all these kids, you know, Toronto is one of the great multicultural cities in the world. And anybody who hasn't been to Toronto, it's just a, an amazing place. But, you know, the Caribbean, the Africans, the, you know, I, I can distinctly remember, Scott, in 2015, meeting Roger Murray, Jamal's dad, and him telling me about their workouts and how he was a track star. I don't know if he was a track star, but he was a track enthusiast in Jamaica and that we're, they were doing all these drills with Jamal. And when Jamal went nuts the last couple of weeks, I thought, you know, Roger Murray knew something that we didn't know because this kid is so special. And I, I wonder if the, the immigration thing is a factor too with the population there. Oh, no question. I mean, you get a lot of, like you said, it's probably the most multicultural city in the NBA. I would think, I think maybe not every NBA player or, or person realizes that. Cause when you get there, you're only there for a day or two, and then you're out. Um, but if you've ever played there or spent any time there, you see it right off the bat. And I think that, that the urban population there is just so in love with basketball. Whereas, people that were born in Canada 60 years ago, that it's all hockey. Um, but now you're coming in from different countries where hockey is not as popular. Um, you have no ties to hockey in your family. Uh, there's no tradition of hockey from where you come from. So basketball is an easy choice to adopt. And then you see people on, on TV, like the Raptors doing their thing and um, the atmosphere around that team and the fans just leads to enthusiasm toward the game. So I think that's definitely a big, a big factor. No question. Now, Nick Nurse is going to be the – he's currently the, the Canadian national team head coach. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would think that that would be something cool for you to aspire to someday is you've already been part of the national team program. But I, I would just wonder if that's something that, you know, if it was in your wheelhouse down the road, how, that, how much fun that would be. Oh, it would be it's, it's definitely one of my goals. I don't, I don't feel uh, any shame in, in admitting that. That's a – Anyone in my situation should be aiming for that. Whether it happens or not, we'll, we'll see. But I definitely would like to be there someday. I'm excited for Coach Nurse to, to lead the team. I think he's a great choice. I hope to get a chance to work with him at some point. Um, when I was when I was eight, my dad was called in to be a guest coach with the national team under Jack Donahue. Oh, yeah. One of your New yep. York guys. A legend. So yep. that was uh, – even at eight years old, I had an immense sense of pride when he went to the, to the training camp and – uh, my mom and I got to go there for a couple of weeks. I remember getting Jay Triano's autograph when I was there. And then fast forward, <laughs> I guess, 30 years, I'm, I'm working for him as an assistant with the team. So things definitely come full circle. And uh, it would definitely be an honor uh, for me to ever, ever be considered for that position, let alone, let alone have it. 
All right. Uh, I don't, I don't want to keep you. And first of all, uh, thanks so much for spending this time with us and uh safe trip tomorrow back to uh, Prince Edward Island. But um, you probably, as much as anybody we could have on, could give us a breakdown of the finals. Um, what, it, what stood out? I know it still hurts. I know that, uh, you know, uh, it, it was a great series, uh, but tell me what stood out about Miami what do you see in in these in these finals? Obviously, it's LeBron and AD against Jimmy Butler and that crew. But what what stood out to you about Miami? And you know them so well. Well, Miami is going to be, I think, a tough matchup for LA just because of their their balance one through six. Um, you can't really focus on any one guy there, and if you do, there's so many other guys that can can hurt you. I think that's probably why I'd be hesitant to you know blitz them or trap them, things like that, throw, throw any junk their way because there's so many guys off the ball that can make you pay. Um, I think they also have decent matchups for Lakers guys and, you know, between Bam, Butler and Crowder, they should be able to at least make it tougher for LeBron to get into the rim, uh, tougher for Davis to get to the rim out of the post. So I think that they, you definitely shouldn't count Miami out. Um, they also have the shooting. Now, with their defense changing, with their zone defense and stuff like that, it was effective definitely in the first couple games against us. I thought we really killed it in game five in the first half of game six. I was shocked that – I was actually shocked that Spolster stayed in it in the second half of game six because I thought we had done a pretty good job, you know, cutting it up. But, but um, for whatever reason, we started missing shots. We settled for some easy ones. Maybe that's what he was gambling on, and he stayed the course. And, and um, I think that his experience and ability to stay calm and – Crunch time, kind of like I was referring to Brad earlier, will be a key in this series as well. Um, with the Lakers, they're a little bit easier to predict. You know, obviously, you got to try and stack the paint against LeBron, keep him from getting to the rim, which obviously no one has done yet in 18 years, whatever, whatever it's been. And then Davis on the block. So, I mean, it's basically a, a really hard thing to stop, but pretty specific game plan to come up with. So, I, I would – I would lean toward the heat, to be honest, if I, if I was ever forced to make a prediction just because of their balance in their lineup offensively. And then the between the coaching staff and, and the athletes they have defensively, they might be able to come up with a good scheme to try and slow down those big guys. Given away, I thought in game five and six, you started to spread out that zone and get the ball to the middle and, and make plays. Can you zone a team with Anthony Davis in that high paint, LeBron out top, you know, Howard on the back line, and then the shooting? Can Do you think you'll see – some I'm just curious because I've been watching, been watching Lakers zone offense. I mean that's that's kind of weird to say, but yeah. I went I went back today and watched all their clips of zone offense, and they're pretty effective with Anthony Davis, you know, in the middle of that zone. Could you see them still zoning uh, LA to take them out of transition, slow LeBron down from penetrating? I think um, they will for sure. I found the reason we had success later in the series is because like you said, we spread it out and just started setting pick and rolls early in the clock. And the earlier you, you start attacking the zone, the harder it is for the zone to withstand the full possession of, of ball movement and paint threats. But when we struggled is when we tried to get to the high post area. Um, that being said, we usually had a guard in that area and putting Anthony Davis in that, that nail spots, a whole different ball game. He can you know get the ball a little bit easier. It's going to be tougher for them to kind of collapse on the, on the nail and the elbows to prevent that pass without giving up something for somebody else in the corner or, or for LeBron to drive. Um, so, yeah, having having a big guy like Howard or McGee in the dunker and Davis in the nail, assuming he can get the ball there, it's going to be, be a little bit tougher to stop than, than what we were presenting in that sort of scheme. 
Yeah. Well, it, it should be fun. And Scott, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, you know, almost three months in the bubble. I know you're worn out. Um, you gave us great insight on not only your career, Canadian basketball, the Celtics, and uh, we wish you some great time off with Max and your wife, Suzanne. I can't wait for you to see Max and see how big he's gotten. Yeah. And uh, take some time away from hoop. And, uh, you know, you, you've been you've been good to my family. So, uh, you know, we have that in common. And just uh, wish you all the best. A great season by the Celtics, really. you got a great young core. So uh, uh, excited to see how your career goes and how the Celtics continue to evolve. So thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. And, and uh Appreciate everything you do as well, and uh, all the best moving forward. Well, that was tremendous. We want to thank uh, Celtics assistant coach Scott Morrison uh, for coming on the podcast, giving us great insight on the NBA bubble, life with the Celtics, uh, a little preview of the uh, NBA finals, certainly. Uh, yeah, his tip's not looking good ju- at the moment. <laughs> No, no, but he did give us a good he did give us a good preview. For those of you who are listening, we taped this show on Tuesday, and Scott had a ten hour drive on Wednesday back to Prince Edward Island, where he's going to reunite with his wife Suzanne and his uh, his son Max, who's going to be turning one year old here soon. And uh, we thank Scott Morrison, and we do assume he got home safely. Uh, so with that, uh, again, if you enjoy what we're doing. Subscribe to the Apple feed. We want we want our bosses to know that we're working hard to bring you great basketball content from around the world. Rate us a five. Go back and listen to those first 17 episodes. We've had some great guests. And again, it's just a way for us to shrink the basketball globe for you. And uh, uh, next week, we'll give you another update on the NBA playoffs. We'll tell you about any international basketball news we have. But uh I look forward next week to bringing you to another place in my world of basketball.